Hey, good morning. I feel like I should uh, introduce myself. My name is Tad Anderson, and uh, I am the lead teaching pastor for Mosaic Church, and I have been out for the past five weeks for uh, just an unexpected but much-needed season of rest. Uh, my father passed away unexpectedly at the beginning of June, and that was just really tough for our family, as you can imagine. Thankfully, <clears throat> we had uh, a two-week vacation already scheduled for the beginning of July, uh, but our other pastors and leaders here very kindly encouraged me to just take some extra time away. And so uh, while that was a difficult decision for us to make, that is what we did. It's, it's never easy as a pastor to uh, take your hands off the plow, so to speak, because you just get going and everything about the work of the church feels so urgent. And of course, uh, there is nothing more urgent than gospel ministry, but uh, the Lord was very gracious to remind us uh, in what felt like a forced time of rest that he is the one who is sovereignly uh, doing the work. He's just blessing us by allowing us to uh, be a part of it. That was evident in many ways, but three that I'll share with you. First of all, man, as, as you know, we have uh, got some really great Bible teachers in this body, don't we? Yeah, like, man, what, yeah, thank you. What a privilege it, it is to, that was an awkward church clap, like, like, yeah, go for it or don't, I don't know, like, I, it made me feel weird, you know, so anyway, just what a privilege it is to be the one who gets to uh, do this as much as I do, because the guys who taught in my stead, David and Phil and Josh and Lewis, um, I was able to catch all their sermons via podcast, and it was just great. Truth be told, I could have stayed on break a few more weeks, as we have even more guys than that who are here who can really preach God's word passionately and effectively, which is uh, kind of awesome considering the size of our church. So, uh, man, God has just richly blessed us in that way. So, huge thanks to all uh, of those guys. I love, guys, if you're in here, I love you so much. So thankful to be doing ministry uh, with you. It is a joy. I feel like I gain more from you than you do for me. But anyway, second of all, uh, we had uh, a new sister in Christ baptized while I was out. Lily Warren publicly professed her faith in Christ and uh, demonstrated her new birth through baptism last week, uh, which is, man, what, that's what we're all about at Mosaic. There's nothing more exciting to us here uh, than to see people go from death to life by the work of the Spirit, to believe the gospel, trusting Jesus as Savior and Lord, to begin abiding in Him committing to live a new life of grace and power and obedience to his word. And so, uh, man, I, I hated not being here. For Is Lily in here? I don't even see her today. But anyway, maybe she's around somewhere. But uh, I, I hated not being here for that. Um, but her baptism was just a strong encouragement to me that Jesus is sovereignly continuing to build his church. So I'm so thankful for that. Also, on the last day of our time off, the same Sunday that Lily was baptized, my oldest son, Graham, initiated a conversation with me and Amy about feeling the prompting of the Holy Spirit to repent of his sin and begin following Jesus uh, as his Lord. Yeah, man, obviously, yeah. we're so excited about that. And again, this was just a reiteration, I feel like, of God's redemptive work going on, even in the midst of our rest. And the third and final thing I'll say is that um, while we began our time of rest just pretty much exhausted, not thinking about much other than just uh, getting to do nothing, uh, by the end, the Lord had really um, reignited our love for you all and just reinstilled uh, just what a great church body this is. You guys uh, are our family. We're so humbled and thankful to be here for as long as the Lord uh, wills it. So thank you guys for being a great church family to us. Thanks for letting us take uh, a time of rest like that that was uh, much needed, uh, honestly, probably more than we uh, even realized when we left. So um, yeah, and if you're here visiting today and I've not yet met you, let me just say, uh, if you're looking for a church that just um, is all about the gospel and all about God's word and all about doing life together as a family and community um, then I may be a little biased, but I think you're in the right place. So we're glad that you're here today. Uh, if I've not, again, if I've not met you, I'd love to do that after the sermon. So please come find me. All right, well, we are beginning a new teaching series today on Romans chapter eight, and the subheading, the subtitle is the best chapter in the Bible. If you've just begun joining us, you probably 
uh, kind of already picked up on the vibe that we love the Bible here and make it the center of all that we teach. We actually believe that uh, the best and most ordinary way to teach the Bible is expositionally, which just means that we strive to make the main idea uh, of whatever passage we're in the main idea of our sermons. Seems logical, you know, just to expose the meaning of the text, if you will. We don't try to get uh, creative here and come up with new ideas and then sort of try to like shoehorn the Bible into our messages in order to make it say whatever we want. We believe that God's word is exactly that, God's words, right? Um, and so it's sufficient on its own. It doesn't need our help to be uh, relevant. It's timeless and transcendent over all cultures and circumstances. That said, we normally teach through entire books of the Bible, but to be really transparent with you, I do not feel ready to tackle all of Romans. Uh, I love Romans, but it is dense, as we're going to see. Uh, we'll take 12 weeks just to go through Romans chapter 8. Many Bible scholars have said of Paul's letter to the church in Rome that it is the kind of greatest theological uh, treatise on the gospel ever written, and I agree with that statement, would say that Romans uh, chapter 8, while it's near the middle of the book, it's really like the crescendo of the good news of the gospel. If, if Romans is like a great uh, mountain, so to speak, okay, uh, full of gospel doctrine on one side and gospel-informed living on the other, then Romans 8 is like the summit of that mountain, it's like the highest and most majestic peak, chock full of just amazing, uh, beautiful gospel promises for the people of God to cherish and savor and cling tightly to as they await the return of Christ. And so we'll see together, so much of it is critically tied to the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in us as believers in Christ. Romans 8 references the Holy Spirit uh, over 20 times, actually. That's more than any other chapter in the Bible. So one of my hopes for this series is that we're going to grow together in our gratitude for that third and often neglected, uh, misunderstood member of the Trinity who, like the Father and Son, is an equally important part of God's gracious and merciful work of redemption in our lives. So uh, with that, let's read our text. Then we're going to pray because I really need God's help. We always need God's help, but I feel it today more than ever. Uh, and then we'll begin. Okay, so Romans 8, we're just going to talk about verses 1 and 2 today. Uh, it says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's pray. Father, you are so incredibly good. Thank you for a beautiful day to worship with this beautiful local expression of your bride, the church. And Lord, now as we open your word to one of the most potent and powerful chapters on the gospel of grace and the work of your Holy Spirit to apply that grace to us in our desperate need. I pray that it would not render void. God, that perhaps some who you have been drawing to yourself leading up to today would finally cease their religious striving or their fearful hiding and just come to be embraced by Christ as their loving Savior and Lord who has already done all that's necessary for their salvation. Or perhaps the others who have begun following you but who've gotten caught in a condemning feedback loop in their own hearts and minds and begun believing the lie that they can't come back to you before they clean themselves up would, would see and be reminded that all which is necessary to return humbly and repentance like we all need to do is there, God, and receive more grace, more mercy in their time of need. Holy Spirit, please be with me now. Give me the grace necessary to communicate this monumental couple of verses today. I am so inadequate and unable on my own to do justice to the, the magnitude of the beauty of the promise of no condemnation. So would you carry me along in my words that I might say all that I need to, nothing that I don't 
And most importantly, would you bring glory to Christ as you apply Romans 8, 1 and 2 to the hearts of the men and women here as you see fit for their exhortation and encouragement by your power in ways that I never could. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. All right, let's get to work uh, because if you've spent any time in church, while those verses we read a moment ago may sound really familiar to you, Paul intends for them to uh, hit different, okay? After we have understood some things from the first seven chapters, Romans 8 verse 1 is perhaps the pinnacle of gospel encouragement. And my desire, however you may have come in here today, is for you to leave incredibly encouraged. That's what I want for you, to leave incredibly encouraged. But in order for that to happen, I need you to trust me as we walk through some bad news first, okay? We, we don't have time to exposit the first seven chapters of Romans, but I do need to at least give you one really crucial and summarizing statement. We really can't move on unless we get this, okay? So here it is, just right out the gate. The world, our hearts, and the Bible agree. We all deserve condemnation. The world, our hearts, and the Bible agree. We all deserve condemnation. That's a tough place to start, I know, but it's where Romans starts. So let me unpack it a piece at a time. Hopefully you're going to see what I mean. So uh, let's begin with the world. As Christians, we believe God created the world. Uh, And in Genesis 1, his word tells us that he made everything in it to be beautiful and good. The plants and the animals and the crown of his creation, mankind, all functioned in glad harmony under God's kind and loving providential rule. Unfortunately, God's enemy, Satan, slithered into that beautiful picture, deceived the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, into distrusting and deliberately disobeying God. And their sin radiated through the universe, relationally fracturing the spiritual intimacy between God and man and marring everything else in all of creation, which is why things are in the mess that they are now. I have no need to elaborate on the brokenness of the world that we live in, do I? You read the news, same as I do. You can see the brokenness of the world, same as I do. And while Romans 1 says that God has made his glorious existence obvious to the created order, humanity has rejected him, attempted to put themselves on his throne and idolatrously determined to worship everything else other than him. While humanity was lovingly made by God to enjoy and reflect the glory of God, we have all presumptuously ignored God, taken his stuff, and pretended that it's ours to do whatever we want to do with it. One Bible teacher says we've all become like glory thieves. And while sinful humanity in their arrogance may not agree with that assessment and may be trying to just kind of go along and and get along with the narrative that everything is just fine and with the new age philosophy that all people are pretty much good, uh, if you will just take a step out of the culture for a moment and look in as an observer, what you will see is an atmosphere of constant angry, blaming, and shaming that proves while no one thinks that they are the problem, everyone really agrees that there's a big problem and it's everyone else other than them. You may say, Tad, how can we step outside the culture and see this? And I'll say to you, come along, friend, and look through a magical window with me called Twitter. I was on Twitter this week, and I came across a viral tweet that was auto-generated for my interests. And it was, don't you love how social media does that? Anyway, those us better than we do. So my interest, it was a video titled, if you want to know something about me, I guess, uh, owner pretends to drown to see if dog will save him. It was awesome. Thank you, Twitter. The man 
starts flapping around in his pool. The, the dog sees it. Uh, some kind of shepherd breed, obviously, runs from the porch through the house, down the stairs, up the stairs of the pool, surveys the situation closer, determines my owner is drowning, jumps in, and begins pulling his beloved owner to safety. Amazing. It was uh, at this point that I made the regrettable decision to read the comments where I saw the undeniable evidence that the world in its sinful misery is quite skilled at condemning itself without the Bible. First comment read, oh, that's nice, deliberately stressing the poor dog. Condemnation. Then someone said, I used to have a dog named Blackie who could do the same thing when I was a kid. The response to that, the real question is, why was your dog named Blackie? Condemnation. Again, you can, it's kind of funny, right? Okay. The next comment. <clears throat> I don't have a pet because I feel bad for them. People like you keep them trapped instead of letting them live in the wild. Condemnation. <sighs> Weary as I was, the final comment I read was, this just goes to show how loyal dogs are compared to people. Condemnation. <laughs> Let me remind you, this is not a politically polarizing post about the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. It's a post of a dog video. And sadly, the same exact thing is happening on nearly every post you see. Much of the world may avoid church settings like this for fear of being condemned by religious bigots. But the truth is, you don't even have to leave your home to be condemned. Just go on Twitter, say anything, and the world will gladly do it for you. There's not just the world that condemns us. It's even our own hearts. It's been 70 years since renowned Christian author C.S. Lewis penned these words, and so some may try uh, to deny his intuitive assertion here, but deep down, I think we all still know this to be true. He says, these then are the two points I want to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way, and they can't really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave in that way. <laughs> so they know the law of nature, and they break it. These two facts are foundational, the foundation, sorry, of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe that we live in. He's saying that really, if we somehow avoid condemnation by the world, you'd have to be off social media for that to happen, uh, no one can avoid themselves. Their own inner voice comes standardly equipped with the conscience, right? Which we find out in Romans chapter 2 is simply God's clever design of writing his law on our hearts. Whenever we do something we know is wrong, those nagging feelings of guilt are unavoidable. It'll ding you five times just on a trip to the grocery store. Stressful day, you snap at your kids in the parking lot, ding, anger. Attractive person, not your spouse. In the produce section, your gaze lingers a little too long. Ding! Lust. <clears throat> Run into someone on the chip aisle whose calls you've been ghosting, so you make up an excuse on the fly. Ding! Lying. Decide to just abandon your buggy in the parking spot next to you instead of walking it to the cart corral like a responsible human being. <laughs> Ding! Laziness. Seriously, put your heart back. <laughs> Realize you forgot to pay for one of your items at the self-checkout. Ding! Theft. And so the Apostle Paul says that even people who don't have the law of God in Scripture become a law to themselves in the day-to-day -day internal accusing or excusing of their behaviors with no off switch. 
How do I silence this thing? You can't. So the world will condemn us, though they may deny the existence of an objective right and wrong. Our hearts, our own hearts will condemn us because God ensured that we would all intuitively know right and wrong. And finally, the Bible simply confirms what we already know, that there is a God, that he is good, and thus, to quote Romans 2, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patient and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And upon hearing this, we may reason, okay, well, then I just need to be good, and then I'll be fine. The only problem is, as we already established, that our consciences bear witness that's not possible for us. The Mosaic Law has over 600 laws, right? In total, we won't even go there, but merely a cursory look at the Ten Commandments with pesky little laws like, thou shalt not covet will quickly bring us to the conclusion of Romans chapter 3. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so it may be at this point you're wondering, is this some kind of cruel bait and switch? (laughs) This pastor said he wants us to go home encouraged, and he's done nothing for the past 20 minutes but tell us how we're all morally messed up, deserve to be condemned for it, and we all know it, which would be a fair assessment because that's what I've done. Here's why. It is impossible to rejoice and be encouraged by the promise of no condemnation if you don't first grasp how clear it is that you are helplessly under the sentence of spiritual condemnation. Like, if you just think you're pretty good, you're a pretty good person with no need to be saved because you don't see how you've done anything wrong, then unfortunately, I'm very sorry, the Bible has Zero good news for you. If you think you're good, the Bible has no good news for you. In fact, Jesus, who's kind of the authority on these things, says the prerequisite to entering his kingdom is despair of self. In his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he he begins like this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He's saying as long as you are under the illusion that there is even a glimmer of hope in your own strength and in your own efforts to live in a way that pleases God, you will never make the cut. You'll never make the cut. But the moment you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, that you have nothing in your hands to offer God that could possibly merit right standing with him, and the moment that you are grieved over the fact that you have this sin problem that no matter how hard you try to white-knuckle it, you can't seem to get it under control. And the moment that you find yourself saying, God, I want to be the man or the woman that your word says I should be, but I can't do it. I can't measure up to your righteous standards. It's 
it's actually in this moment. This moment of emptiness, desperation, and humility before the Lord that something critical has taken place in you, in your life. Not to say it the very most Baptist way I can, because I want to remind you, we are Baptists, okay? The sorrowful realization of our rightful condemnation is the first indication of the Holy Spirit's saving illumination. I told you I could do it. Let me say it slowly. The sorrowful realization of our rightful condemnation is the first indication of the Holy Spirit saving illumination. You following me on that? Let's do this. Let's read the passage leading up to Romans 8. Because if Romans 8 is the best and most beautiful chapter of the Bible, and I want you to see that, I think Romans 7 is perhaps the most relatable chapter of the Bible. And that when it's understood properly, it's like a springboard into a life-changing understanding of God's grace. So listen to what the Apostle Paul says on his way to Romans 8. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want... It's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law, as a principle, I find it to be a principle, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, that is in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. First of all, Anybody else ever find themselves in this predicament that Paul describes? Just me? Okay, a few of you. All right. <laughs> this struggle with indwelling sin where you're, you're so wanting to do what's right, but at certain moments, it, it's like you just don't have what it takes to carry it out. You, you agree with God's law that it's good and you so want to abide by it, but in certain moments, it's like you're overpowered by what you don't even want to do to where it doesn't even feel like it's you who are doing it. Anybody? Many of us have had this exact wrestle countless times. And so we know how frustrating it can be, and we resonate deeply with Paul's exasperated outburst, wretched, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who will get me out of this constraint to my sinful human impulses? Here's the peculiar part, I think. You would expect that he would end the chapter in verse 25 by saying, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that would be it. End of sentence. Like, we struggle as a sinner, but then we're saved, and the struggle's over. But he doesn't stop there. He rejoices in Jesus, and then he tacks on the summation of the struggle. He ends with the struggle. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I keep serving the law of sin. And so here's what I want to place before you today. Paul in Romans 7 is describing the experience of someone 
who's already in Christ. This is someone who's already in Christ. There's debate about that in theological circles. But for all of us who know that we are sinners and who are sick of the struggle with sin, Romans 7 is Paul's way of putting us at ease by letting us know that Christianity is not a religious system for highbrow, morally superior, polished people. It's not it. Christianity is a message of God's mercy and grace and a new hopeful way of living for beat up, banged up, habitual strugglers with sin. We got any of those in here? And so get this, spiritual struggle is not the pre-salvation experience followed by spiritual perfection as the post-salvation experience. But in fact, spiritual struggle is the first sign of spiritual life. Last I checked, Ephesians chapter 2 says that prior to salvation, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And I don't mean to be morbid, but dead people don't struggle. They don't do anything because they're dead. The same thing is true for spiritually dead people. They might be alive physically, but they don't struggle with sin. Sin's just like the air that they breathe, and they're just going with the flow. They're not fighting the cultural current. Now, I know, I know, those of us who tend to be a little legalistic, we have a hard time with this. Trust me, I I know. Like, surely there's more to becoming a Christian than struggling with sin. I mean, like, how can that be it? But friends, let me remind you that God's grace is actually that good. It's actually that good. If you have had a sorrowful realization of your rightful condemnation, congratulations, friend. That is an indication of the Holy Spirit's saving illumination, or to say it the way Bible nerds like, regeneration. Regeneration. Josh reminded us in his sermon a couple weeks ago that what has actually happened in someone who is having this Romans 7 experience is what the New Testament refers to as new birth or being born again. And just like your physical birth, it's not something you do. It's something that happens to you. All of a sudden, we have this striking sequence of new beliefs. I am a sinner and I don't want to sin. I need Jesus' help. And I want Jesus' help because I want to please God. Church, dead people do not have these thoughts. Spiritually dead people do not express these beliefs. These are things that people begin to think and say when and only when a miracle has happened and they have been born of the Spirit. You see, the funny thing about salvation is this. Jesus does not need your permission to save you. And so he doesn't ask for it. He just opens your eyes to your desperate need. And when you feel ready to collapse as a broken and sinful failure, he says, good, now come to me. Come to me. And so to anyone today who feels condemned by their sin, To anyone who feels weary and heavy laden, 
to anyone who feels today so racked with guilt and shame for who they have been, with fear that they will never change, Jesus gently and compassionately says, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Get in here. Get in here. In the gospel, I have done and paid it all for you. I have loved you literally to death. And I have forgiven the unforgivable in you. Just come and rest in me now and forever. This is the good news. This is the good news for sinners and strugglers who by the prompting of the Holy Spirit place their faith in Jesus. There is freedom from condemnation and freedom to live a new life in the Spirit. There is therefore now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So, if you've never quite understood how free and how irresistible this offer of God's mercy and grace is before today, I, I just invite you, I invite you to just Make up your mind right here and now to listen to the Holy Spirit's voice. Give up on trying to get your act together on your own. We both know that's not working. And join Team Jesus. We'd love to have you as a fellow struggler saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus alone. Or maybe, maybe that's not you. Maybe you've already trusted Jesus, but you've gotten yourself into a Romans 7 rut like we all do at times. The good news for you today, brother or sister, is that God's grace is not like an interest-free credit period that if you default on, the interest all accrues at once, and now, gotcha, you have to pay it. No. There's still no condemnation for you. So just come on back to Jesus. That's it. Now, I'm not saying that you don't need to make some changes in order to grow or make amends with someone who you have wronged. You, you may need to do that. Such is life in these bodies of death, right? But thanks be to God, there is no barrier. There's no barrier to your restoration with Christ. Same as the day you first believed. Just come. Just come. Guys, the enemy loves to tell us, oh, now you've really blown it. Now you've really blown it. God will never forgive you this time. You crossed the line. That was your last chance. You blew it. Can I just tell you something about Satan? He was always a liar. And Jesus stomped his sorry behind on the way out of the grave that he conquered on our behalf. That's good. So now, Satan's not just a liar. He's a loser. Don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. For sinners and strugglers, who by the prompting of the Holy Spirit placed their faith in Jesus, there is freedom from condemnation and freedom to live a new life by the Spirit. Once you get in on that, get in on that. 
Now let's just flesh out what those two things mean really quick and then we're gonna close. First, freedom from condemnation. Freedom from condemnation means freedom from fear of death and God's punishment. John 3, 16 and 17, Jesus himself says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but actually have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Later in John, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Revelation says that those who trust in Jesus will not be hurt by the second death. That is, while we may die before Jesus returns, we don't need to be worried about the wrath of God for sin that is coming on the day of judgment. Jesus took care of that. He took care of that once and for all. All that is waiting for those who are in Christ Jesus by faith is fullness of joy and fullness of peace forever and ever. And even the consequences for our poor choices in life, which we'll, we'll inevitably continue to make from time to time as we learn to walk by the Spirit, is not punishment. It's just the loving discipline of a perfect father teaching us that obedience to him is always best. That's good news. But wait, there's more. Also, freedom from condemnation means freedom from shame over your past. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So whatever, friend, whatever you may have been before Christ, those days are over. Those days are over. The psalmist says it this way, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed all of our transgressions from us. Whatever your brand of rebellion was, whatever you were living in, whatever title it may have earned you has now been washed away by the grace that's in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now you have peace with God as one of his beloved blood-bought sons or daughters. Amen. So freedom from fear of death and punishment, freedom from shame over our past. And finally, freedom from condemnation means freedom from endless religious striving. Some of you may have drugged yourself in here today, exhausted, but bound and determined to finally get your act together, start being a good Christian. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't need your help. <laughs> He's perfectly capable of bringing the work of salvation that he started in you all the way through to completion. We'll talk about this as we move on through Romans 8, but the same Holy Spirit who has justified us by grace through faith will also sanctify us by grace through faith. So this is good stuff, isn't it? Freedom from condemnation. Also in Christ, we don't just have freedom from condemnation. We also have the freedom to live a totally new life in the Spirit. I'm not going to linger long here because we're going to spend more time in the weeks ahead discussing these things. But for those who have been sitting through this sermon wondering if I'm ever going to make mention of our human responsibility in the process of salvation. Of course, it's not as though we physically do nothing, but Paul makes it clear, underneath all of our doing is the preceding work of the Holy Spirit who has already done all that's necessary for us to live in freedom, okay? To quote America's theologian, Jonathan Edwards, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin which made it necessary. And so the best way, I think, to describe our role in the work of our salvation is not to speak of what we must do, but to speak of what we get to do, okay? Freedom to approach and know God through his word and prayer. That's the first 
one in your notes there. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, speaking of Jesus, says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. So in the process of Christian discipleship, it's common, I think, to, to, and helpful to, to talk about Bible reading and prayer as spiritual disciplines. But as followers of Christ, we must realize these are not things that we're doing for God. These are not things we're doing for God. They're blessings that he has kindly offered to us. At the base level, we should not be thinking of prayer and reading God's word as things which we have to do, like in a dutiful and borderline begrudging way, but rather as amazing privileges. The God of the universe has spoken clearly and directly to us. He has spoken to us that we might know him for our good and our greatest possible joy. And he has made his ear attentive to our every need. And he doesn't ask us to make an appointment. But he's willing and able to hear us at any time. This is a result of the law of the spirit of life setting us free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Before Christ, we were not able to presumptuously approach a holy God. And now in Christ, we are encouraged to approach God boldly. Also, freedom to live a new life in the Spirit means that we have freedom to be honest about struggles and to confess sin. Before Christ, it would have made logical sense to try and cover up our sin, to strive to make ourselves look better than we knew we were. But listen to what the Apostle John says. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, get this, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So our freedom in Christ by the Spirit is freedom from pretending like we're okay when we know we're not okay. It's freedom to speak openly about our hurts and our hang-ups. It is freedom to stop sweeping your sin under the rug. We can get it out in the open and be confident that we will not only be forgiven, but cleansed and empowered to grow by God's grace and holiness. I, I didn't put this in your notes, but the, the flip side of that is no condemnation and freedom to be honest. For us, it means freedom to radically forgive the sins of others who sin against us. Instead of canceling people, writing people off when they come to us with their heads hung low for the wrongs they've committed against us, we as ambassadors for Christ get to kindly lift them up and embrace them, extending God's mercy as it was first so lavishly extended to us. This is a beautiful thing. Freedom to be honest about struggles and confess sin and freedom to forgive the sins of others and encourage them in their struggles. And last, but certainly not least, the freedom of new life in the Spirit is freedom to become who God created you to be. There's nothing more freeing. There's nothing more freeing than knowing your true identity, who you really are, and what your life is actually all about. It's offered to us in Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Christ, we have the opportunity to be redeemed and restored back to God's original design for our lives, to be his image bearers who live for his glory 
and the good of others in hopes that they too would be born again and experience the unsurpassed encouragement and hope that there is in the promise of no condemnation. All right, I can tell you guys are tired. I better stop before I accidentally get into preaching the rest of Romans 8. You know, um, <clears throat> as a pastor, I've been really cautious with allowing my kids to just assume that they're Christians. And uh, before you <gasps> gasp at that, like it's not because I'm a really mean guy, but because I, I love my kids deeply. And th- the last thing I want to do is give them a false assurance that just because they can regurgitate what pastor dad has said to them a million times about the gospel, it doesn't mean that they're saved, right? I want my kids to really come to it on their own, to really realize their their need for God's grace and to trust Jesus with their own faith, not simply claim to have faith to make me happy, because our kids will do that, right? They just want to please us. They just want to say what they think we want them to say, you know? Anyway, as we were um, talking with Graham last week about his desire to follow Christ, he said something that was like a dead giveaway to me. He said, he said, he said to me and Amy, he said, I feel like Jesus is knocking on my heart. He's like, doesn't the Bible kind of say, say that? You know, like Jesus is knocking on your heart. He said, and when I sin, I feel like I need to go and pray and ask for God's forgiveness. These are not our words, by the way. These were his words. We, we asked him, hey, did someone like just say that to you? Like, like, he's like, no, I just, this is how I feel, you know? And so I said to him, Graham, if that's how you feel and you want to follow Jesus, don't let me and mom stop you. This is between you and him. If you feel like you need to go to Jesus, go to Jesus, bud. He proceeded to talk to me and ask questions the rest of the day about the gospel, and then we prayed that night. He wants to be baptized on September 4th at Beach Baptism, so I'm really looking forward to that. Anyway, I tell you that because whether you are 10 years old, like Graham, or 24 years old, or 53 years old, or 68 years old, it feels the same way. When the Holy Spirit is working in your life and drawing you to Christ, it's like he's knocking on your heart. And when you sin, you feel like you need to go and ask for God's forgiveness. And if that's where you find yourself today, I would just counsel you exactly what I counseled Graham, don't let anyone or anything stop you. If you need to come to Jesus, come. Just come and receive the incredible gospel promise of no condemnation. Let's pray.